Well, welcome to Palm Vista Community Church. This morning, we want to continue in our series in the book of Mark. The series is entitled Incredible because it speaks of our incredible Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, we are coming to the end of the Gospel of Mark. This morning, we will be preaching from Mark chapter 15, verses 20 to 39. The title of this morning's message is The Glory of the Cross. The Glory of the Cross. Church, the cross is at the center of the Christian message. If you're here this morning and are not a Christian then I am telling you this message is for you because this message is about the central reason all these people around you here are gathered. It is about the cross of Jesus Christ and what happened at the cross. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the church in Corinth, modern-day Greece, And telling them about his message, what his message primarily was, said these words inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is Paul now speaking to this church. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him Crucified. That's the theme this morning. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what Mark chapter 15 verses 20 to 39 are going to discuss. This is at the epicenter of the church. It's at the epicenter of this church. In fact, David Pryor, a theologian that we would, we would respect very much, said the following about the message of the cross. We never move away from the cross only to a more profound understanding of the cross. We never move away from the cross, only to a more profound understanding of the cross. So my prayer for you this morning is this. As you hear this message, as you hear this preaching, that you would have a more profound understanding of the cross. Whether you've been a Christian all your life, whether you're in your 70s or 60s or 50s, like some of us, and have heard this message over and over, you were in church Before you were born, you were in church when you were in your mother's womb and you're now in your 40s or 50s and you're still in church and you think you understand the message of the cross and you think you understand what it means for Jesus to be crucified. I appeal to you, I beg you to ask God, because I'm going to ask God as well this morning, to give you a deeper understanding of the cross. Amen? Amen? And if you don't know Jesus, you are seated here this morning going, what is this man ranting and raving about? Why is he wearing all green, and why is he ranting and raving? And is he actually sweating? What's wrong with that guy? I thought church was a solemn place. But here's my prayer, that perhaps for the first time ever, God the Holy Spirit would open up your eyes to see that the cross is not just a historical event. It is, but it's far more, and what it means for you. So let's pray to that end. As you're turning to Mark 15, verse 20, let's pray. God, in the midst of a world that would say the cross is foolishness, in the midst of a world that would say that the cross is a stumbling block, in the midst of the world that would say that the cross is just a bloody display of some sort of ancient ritual of violence and doesn't understand it, in the the midst of a world that would trivialize the cross, make it a, a symbol that's worn around one's neck, or the subject of some sort of passion play every year at a certain time. 
but misses the meaning of the cross. Have mercy. Save your people. Lord, your elect that are fast bound in darkness right now in this building, would you turn their hearts towards you? Open their eyes. Give life to their dead spirits and minds and, and, and give them understanding. Lord, to your elect who are saved, who've sat and heard this message so many times, <clears throat> some of whom maybe could preach it better than I'm going to preach it this morning. But perhaps it's grown old, it's grown weary. They've maybe moved away from it just a little bit into the, quote, deeper things of God. Oh, Lord, may you bring us back to the cross and and, and give us a deeper understanding of it. By your grace, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's read about the cross of Christ. Mark chapter 15, verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they being the Romans, him being Jesus, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, But he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Friends, the narrative here brings us to Friday morning of the Passover celebration, which will begin that evening at sundown. And Mark, if he were filming a movie here, would would draw us and the camera would zoom in and first we would see the disfigured face of Jesus. His beard had been pulled out. Maybe his teeth broken. 
his back filleted. Maybe his intestines were, were hanging out. Yeah. It was graphic and ugly. And Jesus, who tradition would say, by the Roman tradition, must carry that beam of the cross outside the city and up to a hill on his own, that beam that could weigh as much as 100 pounds, was beaten and disfigured so badly he couldn't. And the camera then suddenly pans, and you want to you say to the, to the cameraman, please, take the camera off of Jesus. I can't bear to see this disfigured, mauled, brutalized human being. And suddenly the camera shifts. And it picks up a passerby, according to verse 21. A man named Simon of Cyrene. And the camera focuses in on this man. And as the camera focuses in on this man, you realize two things. Number one, Jesus is actually being crucified, which is the first point. And number two, he is going on his way to death. He's going on his way to death. And so, and so as the camera picks up this man, Simon of Cyrene, and, and zooms in on his face, you realize a couple of things about Simon. Mark tells us this, but you realize this. Number one, Simon's from North Africa, and, and as the camera gets closer, you realize Simon, Simon's black. And then the camera kind of pans out a little bit. And you realize that the Roman guards have grabbed him. They've constrained him. But then Mark does something very unusual. Mark rarely does this. In the span of one verse, Mark's going to give us three personal names. Look at it with me. Verse 21. Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. By the way, Cyrene is North Africa. The father of Alexander and Rufus. The father of Alexander and Rufus. And so if I could just hit pause on this text for a moment, I want to just think with you for a second about who wrote this, when it was written, and to whom. Who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Mark. But where was he when he wrote it, and who was talking to him? He was most likely in the city of Rome, and it was most likely at the end of the 50s A.D., maybe A.D. 57 and 58. And the person who was most likely talking to Mark and telling Mark about all these things was Peter. And Peter was most likely the pastor of the church at Rome. And so Peter is writing to Mark, and he's telling Mark about what happened, and others are giving him information. So Mark can give us the gospel here. And he's writing to this church in Rome. And so you have to ask yourself, why does Mark mention uh, Simon's two children, Alexander and Rufus? Who are Alexander and Rufus? Who are they? And then you remember our sermon series in the book of Romans, don't you? I know you were sitting there thinking, I remember that sermon series. It's probably one of the greatest, second to this series in Mark, it was probably one of the greatest series I've ever heard in my life. Okay, maybe you weren't thinking that. And you think, I've heard that name Rufus before. Where have I heard that name Rufus before? And you go to Romans 16. And you go to Romans 16, chapter 13. And you read this on the screen. Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. The Apostle Paul 
is writing from Greece, probably from Corinth, the southern peninsula of Greece, and he's writing the church in Rome, and he's probably writing that church in 57 AD. And over in Rome, you've got Pastor Peter, and he is telling Mark about the accounts of Jesus' life, probably being written around the same time. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, and this is all happening about 24 years after our narrative today. And who do you find in Rome? Rufus. The people mentioned in Romans 16 were the co-workers of Paul. These were men and women that had worked with Paul to serve the church in Rome. So he's writing these people, and Rufus is one of them. Rufus, the son of Simon, of Cyrene, who carried Jesus' cross in 33 A.D., Now, I'm telling you right now, all of these people were saved by grace alone, because of God's mercy alone. But here's where my sanctified imagination goes. Here's where my sanctified imagination goes. 57 AD is when all this stuff's being written in all, in all this account. But let's go back to 33 AD. Let's go back to the, a couple of hours before Jesus is crucified. Jesus was crucified at 9 in the morning. The third hour is 9 in the morning. Jews started the day at 6 in the morning. Three hour, the third hour is 9 in the morning. So at 9 in the morning, you freeze the frame on the movie. Simon of Cyrene, a, a man most likely a black man from Cyrene with his two little boys. I don't know how old they would be, Alexander and Rufus. We know Rufus, 24 years later, is working in the church in Rome. And Peter is the pastor of the church in Rome. But on that day, on that day, the very first person who carries the cross of Christ is a black man from North Africa. And you know that the people who read that in Rome 24 years later had to remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8. Right after he told everybody he was going to be crucified, he was going to die, he was going to be mocked. And then Peter says, oh no, you can't, you're the Messiah. And then he rebukes him and he says, listen, if you want to follow me, if you want to be a true disciple, what do you do? You take up your cross and you follow me. And a black man from Cyrene in North Africa is the first one that takes up his cross and follows Jesus. I know what you're thinking. He didn't choose Jesus. I get that. He was walking by with Alexander and Rufus. He was most likely in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. But God chose him. And Rufus, 24 years later, perhaps remembering what his father did. Maybe he's reading Mark. He's back 24 years earlier as a little boy. But you know who else is thinking about that day 24 years later? Peter. Because three hours earlier, instead of carrying his cross, Peter denied his Savior. Guys, it's not up to us. It's not up to us. It's up to God's sovereign grace of election. A passerby from Cyrene, an ap- a Jewish apostle. They're both in the same scenes. They're both in the same place. And what they have in common 24 years later, I don't know if, Ruf- or if Simon had already passed away. It mentions Rufus's mom is still alive. So I don't know if she's a widow at this point. She's probably in the church. Paul says, greet Rufus and his mom. They've ministered to me for 24 years. They follow the Lord. But his dad is the first one in scripture that takes up his cross and follows Jesus. What's the point? The point is God is sovereign in these things. 
The point is that as Jesus, with his disfigured face and his body flayed and, 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 and all of his, his, his fluids probably emitting from his body and so tired, he was a, big, he was a strong man, he was a carpenter, couldn't carry that beam. And Jesus knew what he was going as he's going to that cross. He's looking, he maybe looked at Simon and he looked at Alexander and he looked at Rufus and he knew that 24 years later, this guy would be serving the church and he was dying for this man. I I pray you see the Lord looking at you right now. And if you're not a Christian, you would consider this. And if you are a Christian, you would allow this to bring such joy to your soul. Man, you would explode in worship at the end of the sermon when we start singing again. You wouldn't just be going, Lord in heaven, hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We never... Move on from the cross just to a more profound understanding of it. And they were moving on to the cross here at this place. The place of the skull, look with me at verse 22, Golgotha. That comes, that word Golgotha means place of the skull. It was a hilltop outside of Jerusalem, probably looked like a skull. Actually, the word Calvary comes from this word. Did you know that? Because see, in Latin, the word for skull is calvus. Anybody speak Spanish? Ever heard the word calvo? There you go. So from calvus, we get Calvary. It's the place where Jesus was, was, was crucified, a rocky outcrop that looked like a bald scalp. And they took him to that place. And they crucified him at the third hour, which was nine in the morning. And notice what it says about this in verse 24. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. So as Peter is, is, is referencing this in 50-something A.D., and he's remembering what happened in 33 A.D., and the Holy Spirit's anointing them and inspiring them to write Mark chapter 15, verse 22 and 23 and 24, what's intended here is that our hearts and minds would go to Psalm 22. For Psalm 22 is what was being referenced here. Verse 18, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22, stay with me, this is, this is biblical theology, this is God's plan of salvation. Starts at the very beginning, and is moving through history, and when it got to 900 BC, the Holy Spirit inspired David to write a psalm, Psalm 22. And that Psalm 22 was about an innocent, righteous man who suffered unrighteously, who was mocked, who was beaten, who was forsaken. And that Psalm 22, though true in 900 BC, was pointing to the son of David, who would come 900 years later. David the king, Jesus the king of kings. And that psalm speaks of Jesus' crucifixion. As a matter of fact, today, this afternoon, I just encourage you, Christian, read it with your family, your friends. Read it out loud and enjoy the cross because Psalm 22 is talking about the cross. And non-Christian, read it this afternoon. Read it by yourself. That's how the Lord saved me, by just reading the Bible by myself late at night after I'd been partying with my friends, believe it or not. And it was the King James Version. So you know that was God's grace. But non-Christian, if you're here this morning, listen to me. Read this. I challenge you, read it. And ask God to show you, is this talking about Jesus? David wrote it, and who's this righteous man, and why is he suffering? It is. It is. And this is one of the references to it right here. As was the custom of both Romans and Jews, they affixed the charge against Jesus on or around the cross. Look at verse 26. 
It says, here's the charge. And the inscription of the charge against him read. It's kind of like, if you're going to condemn somebody, you better put the reason why we're crucifying this guy. Here's why. He said he was the king of the Jews. The charge then becomes the basis for them mocking him. Look at verse 15, 29b. People are walking by saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Once again, they're referencing Psalm 22, the mockings. But they did not understand Jesus. When it says there that they derided him in verse 29, you see it? Verse 29, and those who passed by derided him. That Greek word is blasphemia. We get the word blaspheme from that word. You know what that means? To speak evil of God. They didn't know it, but they were speaking evil of God. Hey, if you're God, if you who you said you if you are who you said you are, were, come down from the cross and save yourself. You said you'd destroy the temple and you'd rebuild it in three days. You can't even save yourself from death. What they didn't understand is that Jesus, he is God. He is the Son of God. And when he was speaking of that temple, when he spoke that, he wasn't saying, talking about the temple that was just across the valley on a hill in Jerusalem. He was talking about his body, which would become the new temple where God would meet with man. And that temple would be destroyed on the cross, was being destroyed, but it would be raised from the dead three days later. And they missed it. And of course, the chief priests and the the scribes, they missed it as well. Look at verse 31b. And so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another. So the passers-bys were mocking Jesus to his face. They were trash-talking right at Jesus. But the chief priests and and the scribes, they were too holy for that. Oh, no. No, 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 no. So, you know, have you ever, has someone ever mocked you and spoken as if you weren't in the room? It's like, hello, I'm right here, you know? What's he doing here, honey? Uh, you want to ask me? I'm like right here. Well, that's what they were doing. Ha! Huh. And so they started talking to each other. And what did they say to each other? They said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself, obviously. Uh, Let the Christ, which means Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Oh, friends, what they missed, what we all missed, what was to them foolishness, what was to them folly and a stumbling block, was that Jesus came not to save himself, but to save his elect people. And so because he was the Christ, the Messiah, because he was the Savior of the world, because he was the King of kings and Lord of lords, he would not come down from the cross. In order to save others, Jesus had to be forsaken by God the Father and die. And that's point two. The Son of God was forsaken And died. Verse 33 tells us that there was darkness that came over the whole land until the ninth hour. So, what's the sixth hour? Mathematicians, if the day begins at six in the morning, noon. Noon until 3 p.m., the ninth hour. Darkness over the whole land. Wait a second, Al. I thought the most. The most sun that comes on this earth is at noon. That's when the sun is at its height. Yes, when the sun was at supposedly to be at its height, it turned totally dark over the land. What does that mean? This is this point that Jesus was forsaken for our sins. 
Darkness in the Old Testament especially always symbolizes God's judgment, God's wrath. The clouds of God's wrath. That's what is being symbolized here. But wait a second. Who's being judged? Where is God's wrath dropping? Where is God's wrath focused? Who or what is the, is the focus of God's wrath? And we find the answer to that in verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, God's wrath came down on God's son and he was forsaken for you and for me. And he writhed under the agony of God's judgment. God's wrath. Darkness came over the land for three hours from noon to 3 p.m. Jesus took the wrath that we deserved. And in writing these words, Mark is being narrated by Peter and others who gave him eyewitness accounts is referring again to Psalm 22. Look what it says in Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? As James Edwards would say in his commentary, rejected and scorned by Israel, sacrificed as a political pawn by Rome, denied and abandoned by his own followers, Jesus is wholly forsaken and exposed to the horror of humanity's sin. Its horror is so total that in his dying breath, he senses his separation from God. The Son of God was forsaken by the Father. Why? So that the elect of God would be adopted by his Father. Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, was forsaken that we might be adopted in Him. There's the profundity of the cross. There's the depth of the cross. That depth will never be plumbed until and for all eternity we will marvel that we were adopted at Christ's expense. We were accepted when He was forsaken. Because Jesus Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those of us who repent and believe in Jesus can cry out, My God, my God, thank you for accepting me in Christ. Back to the text. Hearing their Jesus' cry of dereliction, some thought, hey, he's calling out for Elijah. See that in verse 36? The end of 35, and some of the bystanders hearing it, behold, he's calling for Elijah. Why would they think he's calling for Elijah? Here's why. Because Elijah, Elijah didn't die. He was taken bodily into heaven. So what some people are thinking is, wait, 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 wait. If Jesus dies on this cross, on this tree, he will be accursed. Because Deuteronomy says, whoever dies on a tree is accursed. Maybe it's going to be like, literally, you know, a last minute play here. The clock's winding down. The game's almost over. But maybe Elijah's going to show up, maybe in a chariot, don't know. And Jesus is going to take bodily be taken up into heaven and avoid any further suffering and certainly not die on the cross. But no, friends. Jesus came to die on the cross to become a curse for you and for me if we are the elect in Christ. He came to take the curse that we deserve. Therefore, he had to die on the cross. 
Elijah wasn't coming to save him at the last minute. He came to die. This is exactly why he was born. And then, friends, the very culmination of the Gospel of Mark. This is the climax of the Gospel of Mark. This is it, folks. This is it. If you're watching the movie, you're leaning forward, you're yelling like, No, no, no! you got to get the bad guy. He can't escape this time. You're like, on the, you're like, I scream at movies sometimes, you know. That may surprise you, but I do. Like, I'll just stand up like, no, no, no you can't get away. So you got to imagine, the, the church in Rome is reading this. People are reading this. Listen, I heard a story recently of a guy who said he was at a passion play. Sorry, not a passion play. Whatever the Christmas deal is. Maybe it's a passion play. He was at one of those at a huge church in Louisville, Kentucky. There's thousands of people. They were all Christians, and it was a great play. And, and as the play is going on, he's sitting behind these two girls. And as the play is going on, it's the story of Christ's life. And as it goes on, and he's he's wrongly accused, and he's being skirted. These girls are they're, they're they're like talking to each other. This is wrong. This is wrong. I can't believe it. And he was just stunned. He realized, wow, they've never heard this. There's a lot of people that are reading this had never heard this. This is the testimony of Christ, right? And it's like, it's, like, it's like when you're watching a movie and you know the truth, but no one else does. You're like, don't you get it? There's the bad guy. There's the good guy. Don't you see it? <laughs> That's how they get you. That's the tension they create, the dramatic tension. Well, people are screaming that at this right now. He's the son of God. Don't you get it? Listen to who confesses it for the first time by human lips in the Gospel of Mark. Look at verse. Read with me verse 37 and 39. And Jesus uttered, a loud cry and breathed his last. John tells us that what he uttered, we sang this morning. This morning, John 19.30. His last cry was, it is finished. Then he asphyxiated. Died, choked to death. No more air. Gave up his last breath. And he said, it is finished. And the curtain in the temple was Torn in two. What curtain is that? That is the curtain that kept holy God from meeting with unholy man. And when Jesus died at that point, that curtain was split in two, representing that no longer is holy God separated from unholy man because Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, by his blood, by his body, is making a way to meet with God, no longer in that temple that needed some serious repair of that curtain, but in the temple of the body of Christ. But here it is, verse 39, the climax of this book. And when the centurion, the who? The centurion, the who? I, I love good dramas. Wait, wait, he's the hero? No! He was not, no way! Him? Yeah, him the whole time. The centurion? Yes, the centurion. You got Who's reading this, guys? A Gentile church in Rome. Who's got his boot firmly affixed to their neck, more metaphorically speaking? The Roman government. So you're saying that a Roman soldier, a law enforcement officer of Rome that has been used to oppress me, is going to be the guy, the person, that's going to confess for the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Son of God? A bunch of Gentiles are reading this. It's it's not the Jewish leaders, who you thought it would be. It's not even the Jewish disciples, the followers of Christ. They've all taken off. They're gone. 
Peter, the pastor of the church in Rome, is there telling you, no, no, it wasn't me. I actually denied him. Now he's this Roman soldier. And it says in the text here, he stood facing him and saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. I believe that was a profession of faith. And I'm telling you, just like I told you with Simon, Simon didn't come to Jerusalem to get saved. Simon didn't come to Jerusalem to carry his cross. God chose Simon. I think God chose that centurion right there. And I'm just imagining this tough man who had seen so many men die by crucifixion. It was ugly. It was gross. It was demeaning. This is a brutal, brutal person. And he stands and he faces the cross and he says, this is the son of God. The symbolism is rich. Rome is represented in this centurion. Caesar bows his knee to Christ. But Christ on a cross. A naked, broken Christ. Oh man. Church in, the church in Rome is like, they're starting to shout. You know, it's okay to shout, right? You think these guys, when they read this stuff in the first, it's like, oh, that's very nice, Al. Let me take another note here. Yeah! Yeah! So just feel free to shout. Just do it, you know, carefully. What's the point, now? Oh, there's so many. But here's the main point. Here's the main point. First of all, saving confession does not depend on me. It's God's choice. Number one. Number two, he's writing to a Roman church. Number three, he's writing to us. The gospel's for all nations. He's not just king of the Jews. He's king of all people. The whole lamb is under darkness. A centurion is the one that confesses. He's, he's king of kings over Caesar, over everybody. But here's the deal. As Corey mentioned last week, God reveals himself in the cross. God reveals himself most fully in his suffering. Jesus did not reveal who he was until he was suffering before the Sanhedrin, before Pilate. And it is this centurion who sees Jesus die, who makes this profession and confession of faith. This is the Son of God. Friends, the cross is where God reveals himself fully. It is the place where we, like the church, the first century church in Rome, their confession and profession, when they would say, having read this and having seen Rufus and having talked to Rufus and said, did it really happen, Rufus? Is what Mark's saying true, Rufus? Were you there, Rufus? Yeah, I was. Did your dad carry the beam up? Yes, he did. Did he die that way? Yes, he did. But he rose from the dead. And so they would confess at the cross by the grace of a sovereign God. That Jesus Christ is God's only begotten. And I'm now quoting here from the Apostles' Creed. He's the only begotten Son of God. Our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Yes, He was born of the Virgin Mary. I know Mary. I talked to Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. I watched them scourge Him almost to death. He was crucified. I watched Him hang on that cross for six long hours. He died. Yes, he did. He was buried. I went to his tomb. But he rose from the dead three days later for the forgiveness of our sins, my sins, your sins, if you repent and believe. He ascended into heaven back to the glory of the Father. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty, and he will come back one day to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. The cross is the emblem of our faith. Why? 
Because as James Edwards would say, the cross is the intersection where God meets humanity. And the main point of this text, the main point of this text is this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was crucified, forsaken and died that we might live. Listen, I I just want to make an appeal to you here at this point. First, to the unbeliever amongst us. I, I just appeal to you that you would repent and believe. I know that God's got to give you that repentance. I get that. But if he could give it to a hardened centurion, he can certainly give it to you. And you may be the child of one of our members. You may, you may not really be converted, but have played the game for a long time. But may God break you. May you stand like that centurion in all of his armor and say, this, this is the Son of God. It's by his grace But you must respond. And secondly, for the believer here today, I pray that you would stay close to the cross. I would stay close to the cross. That the nearness of the cross would enable us to fight three very real temptations. I'm going to leave you with these three very real temptations. Number one, the temptation of subjectivism. Subjectivism. Staying close to the cross means that I don't live my life with God according to my feelings. My view of God doesn't rise and fall with my feelings, my affect. But I'm thinking deeply about the cross. It affects my feelings, but I don't live and I don't view God according to my feelings. So it helps us against subjectivism. Just don't feel like it today, God. Secondly, legalism. Legalism. That it would protect us from living our life according to our performance. We live our life according to Christ's performance. We live in His grace and His glory. We've been teaching that in the Bible 45 class, Grow 201. It's a wonderful class that Corey has, um, has, has put together. I had a chance to teach it, and he put together this wonderful diagram, which is online if you go and read it, and it's about a gospel-centered uh, growth. And it talks about looking in gratitude at what Christ has done for us and looking in faith at the glory that he promises us. And that is the strength and that is what's going to help us walk this thing out, not in legalism nor in licentiousness. Legalism, I'm trying to perform for God. Licentiousness, I can't perform so it doesn't matter what I do at all. No, no. But in a gospel-centered growth. Church, our relationship with God cannot ever be dependent on our performance, but only on Christ's performance. That's why he's came. And finally, protects us from subjectivism, legalism, and condemnation. Condemnation. That we would not be defined or define ourselves according to our sins, but according to God's grace. As, As I shared with the class this morning, it's natural to see sin. It is supernatural to see grace. Do I relate to God according to my righteousness or Christ's righteousness? Am I a self-righteous person who tries to smuggle in some of my righteousness to gain my acceptance with God? Listen, if that were, if that were possible, then Jesus was forsaken for nothing. And that can't be true. He was forsaken so we might be accepted. Here's my prayer, church, that we would glory in the cross. That we would glory in the cross and think about the cross and stay near to the cross to such a manner that we would be able to declare with a loud voice, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray. Father, I I pray, (laughs) I pray for myself, Lord, that you would give me a vision of the cross afresh and anew. I, I, 
I pray for my friends here this morning that you would give them a vision afresh and anew of the cross. That, that Lord, we would think deeply and clearly and, and comprehensively on how the cross has affected us. What happened on the cross. Jesus, from the physical aspect of the cross to what, of what you endured to the spiritual aspect of the cross, you being forsaken that we might be accepted and adopted into your family to the spiritual ramifications, Lord, to, to the application of the cross, that we would, Lord, resist the subjectivism that's easily upon us. And it just seems like, I don't know, maybe it's me or our culture down here. We, we tend to live life by our feelings. We're up one day, down the next. And we tend to view you through that prism. Lord, deliver us from that. Lord, that you would deliver us from legalism, that we wouldn't just be a bunch of self-righteous people trying to perform our way into God's favor but we'd be, we'd be humble people that, that would say we've been accepted by your performance, Jesus. And Lord, if there are those here this morning that are living in condemnation, a low-grade fever of condemnation, Lord, would you give them the grace to rest on your righteousness and not theirs? Lord, I pray that the result of that would be affection. Lord, so many of us can, can live in this valley of a lack of affection, a deadness. We read our Bibles, we pray, but there's little passion, little affection. Our, our affections are for things that are not of your kingdom. Would you transform us that our affections would be for you and your kingdom in Jesus' name? Amen.